Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number six, Judges chapters three and four. Well, as we uh, continue with Judges chapter three, we're going to be introduced to the second judge of Israel, Ehud. Now, the first Shophet judge was Otniel from the tribe of Judah, and he fought with Kushan Rish Atayim to eject him from the southern tribal areas of Canaan. And the evidence is that Kushan was from the southern desert regions known as Edom. And the, the pattern demonstrated by Otniel was the classic pattern of the judges. First, the people of Israel sin, and that sin, by the way, is invariably idolatry. Second, God sees their sin, he becomes angry, and he allows a Gentile neighbor to oppress Israel. Third, the people of Israel eventually cry out to Jehovah, and he hears his people, and he has pity on them. And fourth, he raises up a savior, a deliverer, that's called a judge. He puts his Holy Spirit upon that judge and enables the judge to deliver Israel from her oppressors. Thereafter, the judge will rule for a time. And during that time, the people of Israel will be obedient to God. At least they stay, that, stay away from worshiping the Canaanite gods. And thus they have rest and shalom as a blessing for their obedience. And when the judge eventually dies, the people quickly fall away back into idolatry and that vicious cycle starts all over again. Now, what we're going to see this week, though, is that not every judge fits that precise mold. And not every judge fulfills exactly the same function. This is why there are differences between who the Jewish scholars generally agree, qualify as a shafet, versus who the majority of Christian scholars will classify as a judge. And there are some pretty good arguments on both sides. Now let's take up our, chapter, uh, our study today at chapter 3, verse 10. Alright, so we're going to reread part of this chapter. We're going to start at 10 and I'm going to read through to the end. page 272 in your complete Jewish Bible. The spirit of Adonai came upon him and he judged Israel. Then he went out to war and Adonai gave Kushan Rish Atayim, the king of Aram, into his hands and his power prevailed against Kushan Rish Atayim. So the land had rest for 40 years until Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. But the people of Israel again did what was evil from Adonai's perspective. So Adonai strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil from Adonai's perspective. In confederation with the people of Ammon and Amalek, Eglon went out and defeated Israel, capturing the city of Date Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. But when the people of Israel cried out to Adonai, Adonai raised up for them a savior. Ehud, the son of Gerah from the tribe of Benjamin, a left-handed man. 
the people of Israel appointed him to take their tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made himself a double-edged sword, 18 inches long, and he strapped it to his right thigh under his clothes. Then he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. When he had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who had brought it. But he himself, after reaching the quarries at Gilgal, went back and said, King, I have a secret message for you. The king commanded silence, and all of his attendants withdrew. Ehud came to him. He was sitting alone by himself in his upstairs room where it was cool. And Ehud said, I have a message for you from God. As the king arose from his seat, Ehud reached out with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into the king's belly. The hilt, too, went in after the blade, the fat enclosed around the blade. For he did not draw the sword out of his belly so that it came out behind. Then Ehud went out onto the porch, shut the door of the upstairs room behind him and locked the door. After Ehud had left, the king's servants came. Seeing the doors of the upper room were locked, they said, well, he must be relieving himself in the inner part of the cool room. So they waited until they became embarrassed. But he still didn't open the doors of the upstairs room, so they took the key and opened them, and there before them lay their master, dead on the ground. But while they were delaying, Ehud escaped. He passed beyond the quarries and arrived safely in Serah. Upon arrival in the hills of Ephraim, he began sounding the call on the shofar, and the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country. He himself took the lead. He said to them, Follow me, because Adonai has given your enemy Moab into your hands. They went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab, and permitted no one to cross. On that occasion, they defeated Moab, some 10,000 men, all tough, experienced soldiers. Not one of them escaped. Thus was Moab subdued that day under the power of Israel. Then the land had rest for 80 years. After Ehud came Shamgar, the son of Anak, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he too rescued Israel. Othniel ruled for a generation, 40 years, and then died, and soon after the people of Israel fell into sin and idolatry again. This is the second of the seven cycles of the judge pattern that the book of Judges is going to tell us about. Now, in response to Israel's apostasy, the Lord divinely energized a new oppressor, Eglon, king of Moab. And like every kingdom, Moab had its allies. And in this case, it was Ammon and Amalek. And this new oppressor attacked and took the city of Date Palms, who some say is Jericho, but I think it's another place that's a little farther south from Jericho, which was an important place, both politically and economically, for Israel. Eglon brought this area of Israel under his subjugation, and after taking the city of Date Palms, Eglon would rule them, it says, for another 18 years. Well, as per the pattern... The Lord chooses a man 
separates him away to be his servant for the purpose of delivering Israel from their oppressors. His name is Ehud. Now, Ehud is of the tribe of Benjamin. What we know right away then is that Benjamin was the tribe probably that was most under pressure from the enemy. And we know that similar to the reason for the choice of Othniel's having been raised up, this trouble that's happening right now is also occurring at the southern end of the tribal territories. Now, Ehud was of the clan of Gerah. It, it is prominently mentioned that he's left-handed, a trait that was apparently rather common among the tribal members of Benjamin, but not often present in the other 11 tribes. Now, interestingly, it doesn't actually say that he was left-handed. Rather, it says he was bound up on the right. In the Bible era, the right side of anything was seen as the correct side. It was the strong side. It was the best side. The right hand was used for blessing. The royal scepter was always held in the right hand because it denoted power and authority. So for people of that era, for a person who was left-handed, it was considered that they had a defective right hand. Okay. Not being strong and, co and coordinated in one's right hand meant to the people of that day that that person had a disability. So in that era, for a left-handed person to be used by God was another example of the Lord using the person with the least human ability to do his divine will, which is why it was even mentioned that Ehud was a lefty. Now, it's really rather ironic that Benjamin apparently had so many genetically disposed to left-handedness because Benjamin means son of my right hand. Right? This so-called disability, though, was going to prove to be pretty helpful for Ehud. Well, verse 15 begins the story by saying that Ehud had gone to deliver a present to Eglon. The better translation um, is like in the complete Jewish Bible, tribute. He took tribute to deliver to the king. Now, we've discussed at some length on a number of occasions that one of the main goals of any nation conquering another was to extract tribute, taxes, wealth from that conquered people. The tribute could be anything from animals to produce to precious metals. Whatever that particular people had that their new ruler prized, that would be the tribute. Well, Ehud devised a plan. He would assassinate King Eglon, thereby causing turmoil and political instability among Moab and their allies, and thus Israel would at least have an opportunity to be freed. So Ehud fashioned a specially designed sword that was unusually short in length, about a cubit, about 18 inches. And he hid it under his clothes by strapping it to his upper right leg. And the advantage was 
that since he was left-handed, he would reach across his body to draw the sword and do in that unsuspecting king. <clears throat> now, this particular weapon was kind of a hybrid between a dagger and a sword. It had no cross piece at the top. And thus, it could lay very flat against Ehud's thigh. Now, records indicate that very few people were left-handed in that era. And so, even when Ehud made his move, it was with his left hand, and this really would not have caused the king to suspect a coming attack. That deception would provide an extra second or two for Ehud to reach under his garment, grasp that sword, and kill Eglon. Well, as was typical, Ehud went with several other Israelites to deliver this tribute. We don't know exactly what it was, but likely it was produce of some kind, because that was pretty standard. If Ehud had come alone, it would have raised suspicion. So after the proper respects were paid to Eglon, Ehud left, along with all the others. But at a place... The Bible calls the quarries at Gilgal. Ehud turns back alone. And he says that he has a secret message to report to Eglon. Now, quarries is really not the best choice of a translation here. The Hebrew word is paslim, paslim. And it more means, quite literally, sculpted statues. These were, by definition, God images, statues of the Moabite gods and goddesses. That they were located at Gilgal is quite telling, because it was at Gilgal where Joshua had erected those memorial stones in honor of what Jehovah had done for Israel in bringing them across the wilderness, then across the Jordan and into the Promised Land. Very likely, these God statues, these slain, were located next, right next to the Joshua Memorial Stones because that was pretty standard operating procedure for a conqueror. A conqueror would move quickly to place his own gods at the holy places of the conquered people as a way of demonstrating that his gods were obviously the more powerful. It was a form of constant humiliation and it was always a reminder for the conquered people just who was in charge well Ehud returns alone and when he tells the king there is something he must tell him in private the king believes him Eglon was so confident in Ehud's loyalty that he dismisses his guards they were in a two story building and the king, who was said to be fat, was upstairs because a desert breeze was blowing through to make it cooler for him. Now, Eglon, anxious to hear what juicy piece of news Ehud had for him, rose up out of his chair, and that's when Ehud struck. He reached across his body with his left hand, pulled out the stealthily concealed weapon, and he ran Eglon through with it. We're given some rather gory details such that because the weapon had no cross piece at the top, the entire length of the sword went into Eglon's body and the fat engulfed what little of the handle there was. 
In fact, the sword went completely through his body and poked out the other side. Ehud left the sword embedded in his dying enemy and he left, closing the doors and locking them behind him. Yes, they did have rudimentary door locks and keys in those days. The key was a flat piece of wood that was fitted with pins corresponding to the holes in a hollow bolt. Right? And the hole in the door gave access to the bolt, which was located on the inside. So inserting the flat key into the bolt pushed the pins, pushed out the pins of the lock. This allowed the bolt to be removed from its sockets in the doorpost. The way it operates, Ehud could have locked the door without a key, but it required a key to gain entry once it was locked. So when the king's servants noticed that Ehud had gone, then they went up to check on the king. But of course, the doors were closed and locked. They assumed, as it says in verse 34, that he was, as it says literally, covering his feet. All right, this is a Hebrew euphemism that means he was using the toilet. Okay, so the servants patiently waited. And they waited. And they waited. But the door never opened. Finally, they reached the point where they failed. They had to risk bothering the king at a rather private moment. And when he didn't respond, they got the key, opened the door, found him lying dead on the floor. But the delay, of course, had given Ehud more than ample time to make good his escape. Well, Ehud went back the same route that he came through the area where the god images had been erected in Gilgal. Now, I suspect he probably paused and looked upon those statues with a sense of dark satisfaction. Right, knowing that those gods certainly had not protected the king who worshipped them. And from there he crossed over to Serah, which would have been on the border of the territory of Ephraim. And once safely back in Canaan, he went into the hill country and began sounding the shofar. This was a battle cry. It was a call to arms. Ehud certainly realized that now was the favorable moment for Israel to strike at their oppressors while this uncertainty amid a vacuum of leadership was the mood for Moab. The people of Israel responded and volunteers flooded in from all over. Ehud naturally would be their leader. The first move was quite strategic. They captured the fording points of the Jordan. And thus not only allowed no Moabite reserve troops to come into Israel and fortify their garrisons there, but it also served to cut off the escape route of the Moabite soldiers who were stationed in Israel. Ehud led the slaughter of 10,000 coalition troops from Moab, Ammon, and Amalek. The back of Moab's oppression over the southern Israelite tribes was broken and then the land had rest for two generations, 80 years. Now we must assume from the pattern and what comes at the beginning of the next chapter that Ehud judged the southern tribes of Israel 
that entire 80 years of rest and must therefore have been a very young man when he pulled off his plan and assassinated the king. No other period of rest was nearly as long in any of the remaining accounts of the judges. Well, immediately in the very next verse, verse 31, we're told in exceedingly brief terms the name of the next judge in line, Shemgar. Shemgar is not Hebrew. It's a Hurrian name. Shamgar, however, was a Hebrew. And as the family name is Anath, said so that was his father's name, we see this terrible influence of Canaanite pagan society on the tribes of Israel. See, Anath, his father's family's name, is the Canaanite goddess of sex and war. So here is a Hebrew man, Shamgar, given a Gentile name. His father's family name was made in honor of a pagan god. Nevertheless, Jehovah picked that man to deliver Israel from a period of oppression from the Philistines. Now we're told that he must have been quite a warrior because he personally killed 600 Philistine soldiers and his weapon of choice was an ox goad, it says. Now, many scholars of the judges' era have speculated on why it is that we find the use of improvised weapons mentioned so prominently in the book of Judges, especially as concerns Shamgar and later on Samson. Samson, you recall, killed a boatload of Philistine troops using a jawbone of a donkey as a weapon. Well, every conqueror had their own little different method of subjugation. And one of the Philistine methods was to carefully and completely disarm everybody whom they conquered. So regular weapons like that could even be used for hunting, like bows and spears and swords, all that was banned. An ox goad, though it's not designed as a weapon was deadly and formidable nonetheless. It was used to train teams of oxen. That's the name, ox goad. It was an eight or nine foot long wooden pole that had a sharp pointed end one end and a kind of a chisel-like end on the other. And that chisel-like end was used to scrape the dirt off of the plow. See, Shamgar is a pretty good example of how the characteristics of a judge cannot always be so easily defined. For instance, there's no mention of God raising him up or putting the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, upon him. There's no mention of how long he ruled. In fact, he's never even called a judge. He's referred to as a savior of Israel, a Moshiach. There's also the matter that although it says that Shemgar came after the time of Ehud, it doesn't say it was after Ehud died. And this fuzziness um, is continued in the first verse of Judges 4 when it begins with, but after Ehud died, Israel did what was evil and was handed over to a king from the north that was based up in Hatzor. So the common sense of this is that Shamgar 
delivered another and different region of Israel during Ehud's lifetime. The Philistines were located along the Mediterranean coast and they bedeviled the tribe of Dan and Judah in particular because of their proximity. This was on the opposite side of Israel right, from where Moab had conquered sections of Canaan. So very probably Ehud and Shamgar were contemporaries. Let's move on to Judges chapter 4. I'm going to read Judges chapter 4, all of it. Page um, 273 in your complete Jewish Bible. But after Ehud had died, the people of Israel again did what was evil from Adonai's perspective. So Adonai handed them over to Yavin, king of Canaan. He ruled from Hazor, and the commander of his army was Sisra, who lived in Haroshet Hagoim. The people of Israel cried out to Adonai because he had 900 iron chariots, and for 20 years he cruelly oppressed the people of Israel. Now, Deborah, a woman and a prophet, the wife of Lapidot, was judging in Israel at that time. And she used to sit under Deborah's palm between Ramah and Beit El in the hills of Ephraim. And the people of Israel would come to her for judgment. She sent for Barak, the son of Avinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Adonai has given you this order. Go march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the people of Naphtali and Zebulun. I will cause Sisra, the commander of Yavin's army, to encounter you at the Kishon River with his chariots and troops, and I will hand him over to you. Barak answered her, If you will go with me, I'll go. But if you won't go with me, I won't go. And she replied, Yes, I will gladly go with you. But the way you are doing it will bring you no glory. Because Ad and I will have hand Sisra over to a woman. Then Deborah went out and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to come to Kadesh. Ten thousand men followed him, and Deborah went up with him. Now Haber the Canite, uh, rather the Cani, had cut himself off from the rest of Cain, the descendants of Hobab, Moshe's father-in-law. He had pitched his tent near the oak at uh, Tza'ananim, which was close to Kadesh. Now, Sisra was informed that Barak, the son of Avinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So, Sisra rallied his chariots, all 900 iron chariots, and all the troops he had with him from Haroshet Hagoim to the Kishon River. And Deborah said to Barak, get going. This is the day when Adonai will hand Sisra over to you. Adonai had gone out ahead of you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And Adonai threw Sisra, all his chariots, his, his entire army into a panic before Barak's sword. So that Sisra got down from his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army all the way to Haroshet Hagoim. Sisra's entire army was put to the sword. Not one man was left. However, Sisera ran on foot to the tent of Yael, the wife of Hever the Kenny, because there was no peace, because there was peace between Yavin the king of Hazor and the family of Hever the Kenny. Yael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, "Come in, my lord. Stay here with me and don't be afraid." 
So he went into her tent and she covered him with a blanket. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink. I'm thirsty. She opened a goatskin of milk, gave him some to drink and covered him up again. He said to her, stand at the entrance to the tent. If anyone asks you if somebody's in here, say no. But when he was deeply asleep, Yael, the wife, the wife of Haver, took a tent peg and a hammer in her hand, crept into him quietly and drove that tent peg into his temple right through to the ground so that he died without waking up. So here is Barak pursuing Sisra. And Yael steps out to meet him and says, Come, I'll show you the man you're looking for. He goes into her tent and there is Sisra, lying dead with the tent peg through his temple. Thus God on that day defeated Yavin, the king of Canaan, in the presence of the people of Israel. The hand of the people of Israel came down more and more heavily against Yavin, the king of Canaan, until they had completely destroyed Yavin, the king of Canaan. Well, now we get the fourth cycle of the seven cycles of Judges and involves a name common even for Sunday school children, Deborah or Deborah in Hebrew. So let's review. To this point, we have watched Israel capture Canaan under Joshua because Joshua led Israel to be obedient to Jehovah. And then rapidly upon his death, Israel slid into idolatry. God punished Israel with oppression by a nation from the area of Edom, and God raised up Othniel to combat that. Othniel died some years later, and Israel went right back to its lax ways and idolatry. God responded by allowing Moab to oppress the southeastern tribes, but then raised up Ehud to break that oppression. After eight decades of peace, Ehud died, and immediately Israel went right back to its idolatry. And on the west coast of Israel... Another and different group of tribes learned nothing from what happened to their brothers to the east, and so they began to worship idols. And God responded by opening the door for the Philistines to conquer them. Again, the Lord takes pity, and he raises up Shamgar, who pushed the Philistines out of Israelite territory. And here we are in chapter 4, right back at square one with yet another region of the tribes of Israel going off the reservation and doing what was evil in God's eyes. Amazing. Now I told you at the introduction to Judges that what was underlying all of these cycles of apostasy and then deliverance was the Lord convincing Israel that they could not operate without a king. And folks, I'm sorry to tell you that goes for all mankind and not just Israel. Of course, what Yehovah wanted for Israel was to have a king in the mold of Yehoshua, Joshua, who was a servant both to God and to the people. But as we'll see at the end of Judges and as we move into the book of Samuel, that even though they finally recognized their need for a king. They wanted one that operated in the mode of their Gentile neighbors. Why would they want to leave behind the freedoms of the tribal structure that they had had for their central government 
and now switch over to a king? See, all this was inevitable because it's human nature. Here's where we need to look into the mirror of God's word and apply it to our day in our lives. We are reliving the era of the judges. We generally refuse to see it. Look at the Western cultures of today with the USA as the leader, although that leadership is becoming shaky and questionable. We revel in the notion of having created the most free, wealthiest society the world has ever known. We've done it with a kind of self-rule that we call democracy, employing an economic system called capitalism. And certainly, America was created that way intentionally because the whole point was to get out from under the rule of a king and the serfdom that, was, that he caused. Now, at first, it was Christians who came to America for freedom of religious expression. And so, godly principles were what we strove for. But every year of our existence as a nation, those principles have slowly, slowly eroded. Rome was an even earlier attempt at self-rule, although having an emperor certainly meant it was no democracy as we think of it. <clears throat> even so, every society of any kind of rule on this earth has eventually failed just as certainly as monarchies have failed. Why? Because no society that isn't obedient to God Almighty no government body that does not abide by the principles of the Torah is going to survive for long. And that is the stark but undeniable lesson of Judges. And I know that many believers, especially we older ones, who have lots of sleepless nights as we watch our nation dash headlong towards a secular-based government and a society that wants nothing to do with God except to pay Him lip service. And even that is starting to wane. The end result of all this is predictable. Let me tell you something that may not have dawned on at least some of you yet. The world wants a king. The world is looking for a king. It's looking for a king to save us from where everybody instinctively knows we're heading. World war and a worldwide calamity. All that European style socialism really is, is an intermediate step along the road back to dictatorship or monarchy. And America is catching up to Europe quickly. Anyone who is an evangelical Christian has been taught about the Antichrist and the end of days. The Bible makes it very clear that the entire world is going to be in such a mess soon, I think. And the earth's population so confused and fearful that we will insist that we have no choice but to turn it all over to one man to save us and to rule over us. And while we, he will probably not have the title of king, he will most definitely be a king. A king with more power and more authority 
than history has ever known. Now of itself, that is the way mankind must be ruled by a king. That is what God is going to great lengths to show Israel in the era of the Shoftim. It's our nature. It's the way the universe was created that it be so. All humans inherently know that we need a leader, a strong leader. The problem is, man has his definition of a king, and God has his, and the two are light years apart. The king that men always eventually insist upon is one created in our image. We want him to have the best at his disposal. We want him to be regal and handsome. We want him to take control and make rules that address and solve whatever the current dilemma is. We only want to go about our lives, pursue enjoyment, and leave the details and hard things to him. The kind of king that men want, invariably, wants personal power and great personal wealth. But the king that God wants is a sacrificial servant. His appearance is irrelevant. The rules he should employ in every situation have been ordained by the Creator since eternity past. And they do not change or shift with the situation or the times. Doesn't, they don't shift with our needs or our moods. This king seeks only the Lord's will. And he serves in an attitude of humility, putting the people's needs before his own. The world has known exactly one of this kind of kings. And he also didn't have the title of a king. We've only known one in all history. Yahashua, son of Nun. And we're going to someday have one more king in this mold who will rule forever. Yahashua, son of Yosef, Messiah of God. Now, while we don't need to be accepting of what we see modern or see Israel doing in Judges, we do need to be understanding because we're on the same path and we're getting there the same way they did. Notice something else. In Judges, whenever the people of Israel repented of their evil ways and cried out to the Lord, He sent a Savior. Some Christians think that we can actually stave off the coming of the Messiah and all the bittersweet things that will accompany that return by repenting. I say, not so. The biblical pattern is that by our being obedient and crying out to the Lord and repenting, it can only hasten the return of Messiah Yeshua. I mean, what an irony we are living. If we don't repent, oh, we're going to have a king all right soon. The Antichrist. If we do repent, we will assuredly have a king soon. The son of the living God. 
ancient Israel made the wrong choice much too often. And it was horribly costly and painful for them. Either road they chose, they were going to have a king. But down one path was oppression and servitude, and down the other was blessing and shalom. Up to this point in the book of Judges, it's the southern tribes that have been dealt with. The scene now shifts north in Judges 4. Yavin, king of Hatzor. Here's the Sea of Galilee. Here's Hatzor, just up here, a little bit, just barely north of it. Was ruling ruthlessly over the tribes of Israel that resided in the north of Canaan. Yavin is not actually this king's personal name, by the way. Okay. Like the title Abimelech, Yavin is the dynastic title of a line of kings to rule from Hatzor. Thus, about 150 years earlier, we find in the book of Joshua that Israel fought against Yavin, king of Hatzor, and he burned the city down. But Israel did not inhabit Hatzor. Some years later, Hatzor was rebuilt. And the descendants of that same royal family ruled again over a group of people called Canaanites. But don't think that this means Yavin ruled over all Canaanites. Canaanites is just being used here as a general and generic term for any group of Gentiles who were living in Canaan. Now, Yavin was the king, but his military commander was a fellow named Sisra, or in your Bibles possibly Sisera. And Sisera lived in a place called Haroshet Hagoyim, which translates into the woodlands of the Gentiles. Now, exactly where this place is has not been identified, but wherever it was, it wasn't very far from Hatzor, and Hatzor has been discovered. In fact, many of you in Torah class uh, have been on a tour with me to that very same Hatzor that we're reading about in these passages. Now, Hatzor is located a little bit north of the Sea of Galilee at the end of the Hula Valley, and it was a very strategic location along the ancient trade superhighway that was called the Via Maris. And Via Maris was the most important trade route of those times and because it began in Egypt and wound its way all the way up to Western Asia. Now, as constituted here in Judges, Hatzor was the lead nation in a coalition of other Canaanite nations that were located up to the north. This was actually a role that, as being a lead nation, that Hatzor had played for centuries. It's a very large site, Hatzor is, for such an ancient one. More than 200 acres that archaeologists say was home to around 40,000 people. Well, the army that Sisra commanded was enormous. It was well-funded and well-equipped, as indicated by what for that day was a simply staggering number of iron chariots at his disposal. Nine hundred of them. And it was by means of these devastating weapons platforms that Sisera, Yavin, and the other coalition kings were able to keep those northern tribes of Israel under the control so thoroughly. And this latest depression, we're told, had gone on for 20 years. Now, we've got to keep in mind 
that there was a duality occurring here. From an earthly human standpoint, it was Sisra's military might that permitted these Canaanites to subjugate Israel. But from a heavenly, spiritual standpoint, this was only possible because the Lord ordained precisely this as a punishment for these northern Israelite tribes' idolatry and apostasy against him. So, as was par for the course, the Lord took pity on these northern tribes and raised up a judge, and interestingly, it was a female judge, Deborah. Now, the Hebrew says she, she is Isha Nebia, right? which literally translates to a woman of prophecy. This identification as Isha Nebia is rare in the Bible, and it is attached only to Deborah and two other women. Moses' sister Miriam and a righteous woman named Hulda, who lived in the time of the kings. These women were true prophets of God, and they were greatly respected by the men. In fact, when we're told that Lapidot is her husband, that's about the last we'll know about him. All, right. All else concerning Deborah's husband is apparently not important. Now, Jewish tradition says, interestingly, that Lapidot and Barak are the same person. And that Lapidot is more of a poetic characteristic than a personal name. The rabbis say that Lapidot means torches and Barak means lightning and that these are merely descriptive of Barak. But there's really no evidence of that and I'm going to proceed based on the assumption that Lapidot and Barak are two different persons. Well, we now come to yet another of those times when the nice and neat version of who a judge is and what role they perform takes another detour. Because Deborah is called a judge but is never called a savior or a deliverer. But Barak is. In fact, I made a point in earlier lessons of explaining that these shoftim, these judges, were not people who held court and made legal judicial rulings. But Deborah is an exception to that rule. Verse 5 explains that people came to her from far and wide just for that purpose. And the Hebrew, the Hebrew word used is hamishpat, which means justice, as in ruling of law. So it appears that Deborah had two roles. She indeed was a judicial judge who decided legal cases and she was a prophetess who brought messages of God to whomever God directed her we're going to talk some more about Deborah next week